Everybody find a seat, please, and we'll get started. is handing something out here believe it don't don't get in, in used to this okay <laughs> may not do it every week but anyway I don't know how many people are going to be here and we only made so many copies so like one to a couple until we find out everybody's make sure everybody's got something and then we'll we'll have some extras available if you want to take them or need to you know, sometimes husbands and wives as you know are so different they absolutely insist on having separate papers and writing their own comments and things like that so I'm trying to be sensitive to that but at the same time I had no idea how many to have printed and I didn't want to have a lot of paper and ink wasted be with you and with thy spirit let us pray O god who knowest us to be set in the midst of so many and great dangers that for man's frailness we cannot always stand uprightly grant to us health of body and soul that all those things which we suffer for sin by thy help we may overcome through jesus christ thy son our lord who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the holy ghost ever one god world without end amen, amen. I thought that's the collect for today, and I thought it was appropriate to what we're discussing. Uh, and today, since the last time we looked at American Christianity, today I want to talk about a, sort of a summary of the devil's aims. And what I've given you is a series of quotes we're going to look, be looking at from the book, The Snakebite Letters. And this up here is a description matching each of the numbers except the last one. Uh, of what those are, and I'll, I'll tell you what that is so that you can read my, my scratch. Uh, but some, some preliminary thoughts, and part of this relates back to last week, and that is, even though we're looking at, at how the, the devil involves himself in our uh, spiritual development, we don't want to focus too much on the enemy. So please keep that in mind. He baits what is in us. Uh, and so that's what we need to understand, that there is something about us that was really this is looking at ourselves uh, rather than, than the, the spiritual enemy. So he baits what is in us, uh, and we need to be able to understand what is in us so that we can dismantle the temptations and dismantle the, the issues that get baited by the enemy. So don't focus too much on the enemy. Remember what I said last time about the, the Protestant scholar in the, in the 70s who said there are more people looking for Antichrist than looking for Christ. So we want to make sure that we, we hold to that. We look keep our eyes fixed on Christ, on Jesus. And the second one, let's always remember, and I mentioned last week, the devil has no power in spite of the language. So if you look at these quotes, listen to the language. The demon is talking to other demons, and he says, make him weaken his mind, keep him, dulling their consciences, making them, turning their eyes, never let them see themselves. You see, it's all very forceful. He has no power, and he has no ability to be forceful. He can only suggest, but we are so weak that that's all it takes. 
you know, how many, you know, I've said this before, but how many of us, when we're watching TV at night and the commercials for food come on and we get up and head for the fridge, you know, that's, that's an example of it. All it is is a suggestion. I always tell Grace, don't, don't suggest anything to me. I'm too weak, you know. So in any case, he has no power. And remember the four stages of sin. First motion, did God say or, or yeah, did God say or if you are the son of God. The first motion, entertainment is when we hang around and we think about it. Consent is when we give in mentally, even though we haven't done it, and action when we actually act on it. So what we're doing is the devil works at the first motion level. He introduces many of the, the first motions that occur to us, knowing how each of us is and what our weaknesses and temptations are. So he lays them out there. Uh, so he's the source of most of our first motions. Uh, <clears throat> And as we learn to identify these things, this is why self-examination and confession is so important, uh, because we learn things about ourselves and we understand where we're tempted and where we can be tempted, and we want to know that. It's a good thing, not a bad thing, in spite of what our sinful nature says. So we begin to recognize these sinful tendencies and these, these temptations, and we can actually begin to dismantle them uh, willfully and, and act in response to them and cut them off at first motion when they're not sin but simply an impulse that goes through us. Uh, so that's what we want to learn here. But we need to know what the enemy's doing and what, how we are uh, susceptible to this. Uh, and then we can begin to interrupt sin. And remember that when we interrupt sin, what, what sin does is it separates us from our, our rightful function and role as recipients of God and recipients of God's life and being. He comes into us, and we were, we, as you say, we were made for this. But when we sin, we, we, we violate that process. So we hold the key in a sense. God comes to us, and he makes it possible, but we have to respond. And all we have to do is, 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 is say no to the temptations. By the God's grace, we can do it. Uh, and so... When we do, it, it opens us to God, and he can begin to fill us because we have willfully chosen to open ourselves to him, and that's what this is about. So I want to look at these, uh, these things that are on that list there. The first one, and this is sort of like an antiphon, so it's going to be at the beginning, and I'm going to say it again at the end. The goal, this is the demon talking to a lesser demon, the goal is to make him an unbeliever who still assumes that he believes. Identity confusion. And I see a lot of Christians, people who call themselves Christians in America today, who don't know what that means. If we follow Christ, we believe what he said about himself. And he said he was God and there was no salvation except through him. Now that's either true or he's a liar. It's not negotiable. And yet the enemy wants us to make us, makes us think that we can, all we got to do is say, well, I'm a Christian. I saw my dad's dog tags from World War II recently. And he didn't go to church then at all. And yet underneath it says Protestant or by implication Christian. So, you know, that's why we get labeled and we take that label and we say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, that's not to understand. A Christian is one who, who believes in what Christ said about himself and follows it or at least tries to. So identity confusion is one of them. Uh, you're who's, 
don't let that priest tell you what a Christian is. No, I'm not telling. I'm telling you what the church says. I'm telling you what Christ says. So I'm not making it up. It's not for me. So it's sort of an antiphon to all of this. Second one. Your first step must be not to attack his will, but weaken his mind. So lead us to irrational thinking. Now, please understand something. In, in Greek, the word for mind, as we understand it, is noose. But in the church's use, noose is broader than just intellectual thinking. It is understanding what God reveals about himself. Uh, and using the mental faculties to respond to it as a part of the understanding. So it's a holistic perspective. But the enemy wants us to, to think only in terms of intellectualism. So he, he tempts us to intellectual, to irrational thinking. And it is irrational. We don't think it's irrational, but we're, because we're sinners. We've been doing this for a long time. I mean, a lot of people are attracted to orthodoxy because they see it as being sort of intellectual. Well, that's not it. And if that's the perspective we take, we're making a big mistake. We want to come into the presence of God and move all the things out of the way that are our fault uh, before him so that he can fill us with his divine life. And we will understand as well as a product of that. So that's what we want to do but he wants to keep us thinking irrationally. Oh, if I just understand all of this, I'll have it. Well, guess what? Not true. I, 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 there are two kinds of books on orthodoxy. I'm speaking here. This is my opinion, okay? So hear me on this with these next few words. But there are two kinds of books. One is sort of objective... Um, descriptions, almost intellectual descriptions of what constitutes the doctrines of orthodoxy. That's necessary read, but it, but it lacks something. What I look forward to seeing is a book that tells me about how to open myself to God so that he can fill me. And that's the other kind. Those are the ones that, in, in my opinion, that give life. I was reading one recently. One of my favorite writers is Metropolitan Horatius Vlachos, and he was writing a book about Saint Sophroni. And as I finished the book, I felt like I'd been in prayer for three hours. And yet here I was reading. That's what, that's what we're looking for. That's what we're looking for in our own personal lives. So irrational thinking. Remember, number three, remember our basic principle, keeping his mind and his morals in separate compartments. Compartmentalization. That is, we have a religious part of us and we have a spiritual part of us. We have a social part of us, whatever. Not, 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 and none of them will, will touch one another. I remember when I was a young man in my high school years, I went to church every Sunday, and I was so faithful to it, and yet when I walked out the door, it was a whole new world. <laughs> and I didn't act like a Christian, much to my regret now. But I was compartmentalized, and that's where the enemy wants us. As long as we're compartmentalized in every... St. Paul said we bring all thoughts under obedience to Christ. If we don't do that, we become compartmentalized. And then this has no effect on us. It's just something we do. Well, we don't really need Christ or the church to do that. A fourth one, number four, keep his mind away from noting the self-contradiction in our propaganda. 
the value judgment that there are no real value judgments, the dogma against dogma. So contradictory beliefs. This is related to number two. Contradictory beliefs. There's nothing contradictory in orthodoxy, I assure you. Now, it is overlapping. And so sometimes if it seems like I'm repeating myself, number one, I'm 72, so I may be repeating myself. I just, uh, and, and number two, everything is interaction, it interacts in orthodoxy. You can't separate Christology from, from soteriology, for example, or spirituality from, from daily living. They're interwoven, and they must be that way, or we don't understand it correctly. And one cannot dismiss one uh, without dismissing the whole thing. So what we say about the Blessed Virgin Mary tells us something about the church, ecclesiology. tells us something about soteriology, how God saves. It tells us something about Christology. It tells us something about God. That's why we don't get rid of it. We can't. We can't get rid of any of those. We have to understand all the parts together. Keep his mind away from noting the self-contradiction in our propaganda. Here's the thing. Uh, Self-contradiction in our propaganda. So, so we say that that's, or the demons say, that's not acceptable and that's not real. And you can't believe that. And yet they're telling you something you should believe, and that is that you can't believe that. So when those temptations are there, consider them uh, and consider if they're rational. Most of the time they are not. But it doesn't matter, because what we believe transcends rationality. It is beyond that. One of the things that struck me recently in my own personal contemplation about much of this, if you remember last year we talked about creation. And science says that the world came into being in millions of years or billions or whatever they're saying these days. And Genesis 1 says six days. Well, if we're looking at it from this end, according to our own rationale, those two don't agree. And yet if we look at it from God's perspective, backwards, and God is eternal, so he, he transcends time, but he's also, he enters into time, then for him, from his perspective, billions of years is nothing but a day. And a day is nothing but billions of years. And to the two stories from his perspective do not contradict. They complement or they speak of the same thing. That's the experience we want to have, to see it from God's perspective. That's where we want to go. So there's the enemy's thoughts about this are always contradictory. And this is true throughout history, folks. So the devil doesn't come up with anything new. We're so gullible, he doesn't need to. Just do the same thing over and over again. Number five, it's not new that we've tempted them to live promiscuously, but it's thoroughly novel that we've tempted them to justify it, to glorify it, even to sanctify it. So he gets us or attempts us to justify our sins. What did, what, what did Adam say when God called him on it? It was the woman you gave me. Amen. So, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it was the woman you gave me. So he did double blame. He blamed God and he blamed the woman. So Eve is probably, she doesn't record it, but she was probably saying, oh, Lord, why'd you ever give me this guy? <laughs> <laughs> so just, 
So justifying our sins, we try to justify them. Well, I can't help myself. Nonsense. Or it's okay because I mean well. Well, we all mean well. I, I, I remember that cartoon one time I saw came out of a little tract. You know, the Protestants get some really good tracts going sometimes. And one of them showed people walking, uh, was it people walking toward hell, several of them. And one of them was saying to the other, we, I, well, I meant well. I don't understand this. And the other one behind him says, yeah, well, you meant well. We all meant well. <laughs> so, which I thought was pretty profound. It's also you know. back to the, did God really say? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Justifying sins. So that's a temptation to justify our sins. Here's where life is. Not justifying our sins, but, but looking at ourselves and admitting what's there and giving it to God. That's why I say when you look at the self-examination, you're going to look at and you're going to see things in that self-examination. And you're going to say, that's not sin. Well, what humans do when the devil tempts us is to get to bog down on those things. Well, ah, this one is wrong, therefore the whole thing is wrong. We, we don't need to do that. We need to look at what touches us and deal with that and leave the rest. I guarantee you everything in the self-examination is sin. I guarantee you. But we're not always ready to understand some of them, and we cannot justify ourselves by ignoring them. And when we do find them, we need to admit them. That's where life is, and that's where God begins to fill us. Number six, impenitence is what we must aim at by dulling their consciences to guilt, making them feel more guilty about guilt than about sin. Now, this was written in the 80s, and so in those days, in the 70s and the 80s, there was a whole movement in Christian circles uh, to uh, make people uh, get away from any sense of guilt, and there was talk about false guilt. Well, there is false guilt. You know, I didn't punch any of you in the face, so if I start feeling guilty about punching somebody in the face, that, that's a false sense of guilt. But I have lots of guilt for a lot. I have guilt for a lot of other sins because I have lots of sins, and we all do. We need to feel guilty about the right things. So, you know, well, anyway. Errant guilt. Misunderstanding guilt, so then we don't, or tell us we don't need to feel guilty at all. <laughs> We have guilt about our sins. That's why guilt is there. It's the way the conscience works with God to help us get through these things and correct them. Seven, convince him that he's just not strong enough, even with the enemy's help. Turn his eyes away from the enemy and onto himself. That's the skeleton key to all the doors. In other words, self-absorption. I can't do it. I can't do it during Lent. Yeah, we can. We, maybe we can't do what we, 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 we didn't take on a discipline uh, in conjunction and in, in consultation with our spiritual father who sees us better or someone else who's more objective. And therefore, we take, more than we can, take on more than we can chew. Many times we excuse ourselves from simple things which we can handle. So... We, he convinces us that he gets us self-absorbed. I can't do this. Yes, we can. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Number eight, both overdone guilt, what a great sinner I am, and underdone guilt, how innocent I am, are forms of pride. Never let him see himself as he is, an ordinary grubby little child. So the sin of pride, the source of all sins, keep us from this thing. 
And so, you know, the thing is, that, well, I don't want to go to church because they're all sinners. I told you, there's a, there was an old saying that said, if, you, if you're looking for the perfect church and you find it, don't go there because the minute you walk through the door, you will have ruined it. <laughs> the other side of that is, well, I'm, everybody's righteous and I'm a sinner and I can't go there. Well, that's wrong too. You know, when we're all in there today, it was a hospital full of sick people. All of us, sick. That's why we're here. You don't go to a hospital and tell the doctor, well, doc, I don't buy that treatment plan. So I'm leaving and I'm nothing wrong with me anyway. Well, yeah, we're all sick. So pride, tempt us to pride. Number nine, remember my previous advice about spiritual warfare. Don't let him suspect he's at war, that his choices are a matter of life or death. So tempt us to spiritual, what I would call obliviousness being oblivious to the reality. We're at war. Yeah, so there you go. So Every it's, one of it's us. All okay and, you know, I know you don't, you want to go home and okay, have so lunch and have, watch the football know, games and take it easy and not think about these things. I, I feel the same way. Uh, but it is what it is. You know, you get home and the kids misbehave and the spouse is irritated with you for some justifiable reason. Uh, and <coughs> I'm just trying to skirt the issue here, see? <laughs> In any case, uh, we don't want to admit that, but it is what it is. You ever notice how the kids always act up at the worst times? It, Gosh, did they have to pick this down? Really? Now? But, so spiritual obliviousness, who tempt us to this. Number 10, the enemy is, this is one of my favorites. The enemy has commanded premarital chastening and postmarital fidelity with no ifs, ands, or buts. Your job is ifing, anding, and butting. And that goes for everything. Well, well now, what if, what if, so the, so the temptation is toward constant questioning. Now, it's okay to question. I urge you to question everything in the faith, but question in order to go deeper into the mystery, not in order to stop going into the mystery. And for some of us who are inclined to curiosity, we have got to have answers. We want to ask all questions, and that's okay. I hate it when somebody says to me, that, and don't say this. Probably you'll probably several you'll do it just to get my goat, but, and I probably deserve that. But in any case, Somebody will say, this may be a stupid question, but, and my philosophy is the only stupid question is the one we're afraid to ask. I'm not serious about that. We should ask. It's okay to ask. But when we ask, we want to know, we want to do so because we want to be drawn more deeply into the mystery and not because we won't believe until we get a decent answer. Because I assure you, we'll never have a decent answer. We'll never be satisfied. And so constant questioning for the wrong reasons. Number 11, the, sacred, the sense of the sacred and of a sacred place and time, a sense that is nourished by that building and his ritual attendance in it must be eradicated from his consciousness. So, and I'm not trying to get into your, your area, but these last couple will touch on that. Misunderstanding, tempt us to misunderstand sacred space. So when we come in there, it's just a building and we can meet anywhere. Well, we can but the space becomes sanctified. I remember years ago when I was in the Episcopal Church, the church building, the building where I attended church had been, was 100 years old. 
and they renovated the place. In order to do it, they had to rip the sheetrock off. It wasn't sheetrock, it was, it, was, it was plaster. They had to rip the plaster off the walls. It took a long time to do it, and the building was gutted for a while, and they continued to have their services on Sunday. And one of the ladies, who later followed us to Orthodoxy, uh, and was one of the founding members of our parish up in Wichita Falls, uh, said, is amazed how you could see the walls stripped down to the brick and the stone, and yet you could feel the decades of prayer in, woven into the rock itself. That's what happens in sacred space. God manifests himself over here, not just in the sacrament, but in all of us, in each of us. And so the space begins to be sanctified. Plus, knowing this and that this is going to happen, the church itself tries to protect us from doing things that are stupid, like build a church in the round or do whatever you want. Do you know that when we build a church, we have to submit the plans to the archdiocese for approval so that what we do is in compliance with orthodox spirituality? Now, there are some different things we can do, but, but we, have, we have to do that. And I assure you, the hierarchy has no problems with telling us this isn't going to work. That's what I like about it. It's nice and clear. So it's to protect us. And I can tell you right now, I mean, this church was designed, there are three kinds of masses in the Western Rite. And this one was designed for the middle kind of mass, what's called a sung mass. My parish in St. Benedict was the same way. We designed it for a sung mass. I didn't have deacon and subdeacon to serve with me. We had a high mass has those. You need more space in a high mass. So that was okay, that kind of difference. Had we known probably, Father Patrick and had I known, we might have planned ahead, but we didn't know. But we still were within the bounds. But what about a church in the round, for example? No such animal. So anyway, misunderstanding sacred space. This is sacred space. When you come here, don't treat it like it's casual. It's why the altar, one of the reasons why the altar rail is there is to keep people from wandering into the sacred space. You ever been to this, the mission uh, trail down in San Antonio and gone to all those old missions? And so there are active churches. So sometimes they have to put rods across the altar rails to keep wandering people who don't understand sacred space just going in there with their cameras and taking pictures because they don't get it. And that's in a Catholic church. Number 12, if you can't keep his body from going to church, at least stop his soul, pervert his motives. Get him to go for any other reason than an act of obedience and worship to the enemy. Let him go not to give, go, let him go not to give, but to get something, comfort or good feelings or fellowship. He'll soon stop going for he can do those, he can find those things more easily in a bar. So avoid church attendance. I mean, you all know this. Now, please understand this. If you can't be here because you got COVID, that's a good reason. If you're sick as a dog, that's a good reason. But I didn't feel like it this morning is not a good reason. So we need to know the difference. But the enemy is going to tempt us to do the ones where we don't really feel like. And I've said this to you before, too, and I reiterate this. If you can't be here for any reason, you know we start Mass at 930. Say some prayers at 930, and you're praying with us. Doesn't have to be more than a minute. Say the Our Father, but at least you're praying with us, and we're doing it together. It's that easy. Anybody can do that. 
but make sure that we're not here for good reason. So avoiding church attendance is one of the enemy's temptations. And all he can do, he can't stop us from coming, but he can sure make it hard on us just by saying, ah, you know, you went last week and you've gone once every month for the last six months, so come on, have a break on yourself. So that's what he does. And we buy right into it because we're so weak. Number 13, we need to turn them inward, give them ingrown eyeballs, confuse faith with feeling, objective fact with the subjective interpretation. So confuse, ingrown eyeballs, yep. Confuse faith with feeling. Remember I told you before, our feelings are the result of faith, not the cause of it. You see? So in orthodoxy, as we come to understand the truth and enter into the experience of God, we will have feelings. Sometimes they're very, they're great. And sometimes we don't feel anything and it has nothing to do with anything. So, you know, you, you've all heard the story. You don't know what it means to make confession until you go and you'll feel so relieved. So we've all heard that. So half of us go to make confession for the first time and we don't feel anything. We think, what's wrong with me? Nothing. I don't feel anything most of the time. I know what's going on, and I know what the results are, but I don't feel anything. I've gotten used to that. It's okay. That doesn't matter. I'd like to feel what some people feel about a great burden lifted off their backs and things like that, but the burden's lifted off regardless of what I feel. And so when we come to get up in the morning, we want to come to church, and the temptation is stay home. You don't feel like it this morning because you stayed up so late last night watching movies and whatever else was on. Um, and so we don't come. Or we do come. And we have, you know, something about the liturgy makes us feel the warm fuzzies, and we feel so good about it. Oh, it's so wonderful. And well, what's the difference between that and getting up and being here and feeling nothing? important that we do it objectively but the enemy wants us to feel it and so in American Christianity spirituality is measured by what one feels and that is not orthodoxy spirituality is measured by how we open ourselves to God and that can sometimes be a consuming fire 14, it's nearly impossible to distract them in the confessional, so we must distract them from it. Keep them away. Terrible things happen in that little black box. Next to the tabernacle on the altar, that's the place we fear more than any other on earth. So, avoid confession or repentance. There's your lead-in for your, one of yours. So, if you just take these, and, and I'll skip the last one. It's on the back page, and you can just read that yourself. But it, Identity, identity, these are the temptations. Identity confusion, irrational thinking, compartmentalization, contradictory beliefs, justifying sins, errant guilt, self-absorption, pride, spiritual obliviousness, constant questioning, misunderstanding sacred space, avoiding church attendance, confusing faith with feeling, avoiding confession. That's what he tempts us to do. Uh, and we're so gullible, we play right along. And then we wonder why we don't get anything out of it. Who wants us not to get anything out of it? And what we get is not what we feel, but what is objective truth. So anyway, 
end of sermon. Next time we'll look at what do we do about it. We've sort of dealt with this. That's why I say it's overlapping. Sort of dealt with this, but we'll get some more insights. All right, it's time to go. So last time I opened it to questions and it went too long. So <laughs> I won't do that this time. You just take that. And as it says in, in, in Arnold Schwarzenegger's first Conan movie, Contemplate this on the tree of woe. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry.